0: that you would be honored and you would increase and I would decrease. I need your help. Amen. Amen. How many of you have been to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History? Don't be bashful. Hands up. Yeah. Yeah, quite a few. We're fairly close to D.C. I wonder how many of you have seen the Hope Diamond there. Any more hands? The Hope Diamonds, yeah, yeah, it's quite it's quite the stone. Uh, it's if you're not familiar with the Hope Diamond, it's a blue diamond, and I learned this past week that blue diamonds are 0. .0001 or one millionth of one percent of all the diamonds in the world. There's not many blue diamonds. Uh, the Hope Diamond also weighs 45 carats. If you're not familiar with what a carrot is, or thinking, I thought we ate carrots, <laughs> a carrot is one carrot, about the size of an average stone on an engagement ring. So, all of you who are married, if you're looking at your left hand right now, and if there's a stone there, maybe it's roughly one carat, the Hope Diamond is 45 times that size. Uh, it exchanged hands for over 300 years before being donated to the Smithsonian by Harry Winston in 1958. And some people have estimated its market value at upwards of $350 million. Can you imagine that? Holding the equivalent of $350 million in your hand. But if you ask the staff of the Smithsonian what it's worth, do you know what they say? It's priceless. It's priceless. Why, why do they say that? Think about it. Well, they say that because the worth or value of a jewel increases with the rarity of the jewel and no one has yet to discover another diamond on earth like the Hope Diamond. So it's, it's unique, it's one of a kind, and that's not just because you know, some hawker at the state fair is, world's smallest, world's greatest, you know. No, it's because professional jewelers and museum curators have informed us, knowledgeable people, that it is one of a kind. They know so. And yet as I thought about this, This thought struck me. It could be next week, it could be next year, maybe 200 years from now. There is a very real possibility that someone will discover a larger blue diamond, and that the glory of the Hope Diamond will be eclipsed and fade. Church, not so with Jesus Christ. Not so with Jesus Christ. If if the book of Hebrews that our brother Duane read from earlier tells us anything and establishes anything, it establishes the absolute and eternal supremacy and worth and value of Jesus Christ. That's what it does. No one is more exalted than he is. No one is more glorious than he is. No one is mighty to save like he is. And therefore, no one is more satisfying or worthy of your trust than Jesus is. But both who he is and what he does make Jesus utterly unique. Why do I say that? particularly the what he does part. Well, I say that because unlike the Hope Diamond, Jesus doesn't just lie around in some exhibit somewhere. He's not just an artifact on display. He's done something. Just as importantly right now, he's doing things. He's not lying around being valued by jewelers. He's on the move. He's saving people for the glory of God. He's doing things and he's done things that no one else ever did and no one else will ever do. What are those things from Hebrews 2, 5 through 18? There there are at least five of them, I think. One, Christ alone restores us to glory. Two, Christ alone destroys the enemy of our soul. Three, Christ alone delivers us from the fear of death. Four, Christ alone intercedes for us before the Father. And five, Christ alone helps us in the face of temptation. It's not just one thing or one reason we trust Christ alone. But if these verses do something else besides help us understand the complete sufficiency of his saving work, it's this. They help us see the connection between, as I said last Sunday, who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Why do I make a big deal of that again? Why, why is that important? For this reason. It's because who Jesus is enables what he does. And what Jesus does requires who Jesus is. only the Son of God incarnate can do those five things for us. There's no one else that can do that. And if he's not the son of God incarnate, then he cannot do those five things for you. Because as I said last Sunday, it's the exclusive identity of his person that guarantees the complete sufficiency of his work. Because if Jesus is not the incarnate son of God, God in human flesh, he cannot be your savior and we would have no hope of salvation. He has to be that. He cannot just be a mere man or a good teacher or a religious figure in a lineup of religious figures. He must be the Son of God incarnate to do those things. One of the most important truths that the church recovered in the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation, is that Christ and Christ alone is worthy of our trust as our Lord and Savior. No one else can do what he's done because no one else is is like him. And so the goal of the sermon this week, in many respects is the same as the goal of the sermon last week and the goal of the sermon next Sunday. What's that? To help us understand exactly what it is about Jesus that makes him utterly unique. What's unique about Jesus? And, And why is Jesus alone, Christ alone, worthy of our trust as Lord and Savior. Now, now I have a warning to bring to all of you at the beginning of this message. And the warning is this. I warn you, especially those of you who have been listening to sermons about Jesus for decades, of which there are many in this room, praise the Lord for that, that the entire goal of Hebrews 2 is not so much to help us understand something new, as it is to remember and apply something old. Hebrews 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have never, ever, ever, ever heard before. (laughs) No. To what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. What does that mean for you as you're listening this morning? What means this? Alarm bells should be going off in your mind if you find yourself listening to this sermon or any other sermon for that matter and thinking, oh, I've heard all this Jesus stuff before. Why can't the preacher man up there tell me something new? Well, perhaps you have, friend. Perhaps you have heard everything I am about to say before. Before. But perhaps the author of Hebrews knows something about you that you have yet to learn about yourself. Namely, that we never outgrow our tendency to trust in so many other things besides Christ to save us and deliver us. He knows that about you. We we trust our education. We trust our resume, we trust our job skills, we trust our physical beauty, we trust our sexual power, we trust human relationships, we trust our budget, we trust our bank account, and a thousand other things to guarantee a bright tomorrow. And you know what's sobering about this? You can trust all those things and engage in a thousand other expressions of idolatry while your hands are up in the air and you're singing, In Christ alone my hope is found. You can do that because trust isn't a matter of the song we sing. It's what we're leaning on and believing in and clinging to in our heart. And that frightens me that I could be standing there singing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. And in my heart, I could be thinking, in my retirement account alone, my hope is found. (laughs) We do that, and it's sobering. God, God help us to remember and trust that it's only through the person and work of Christ that we can become what we were created to be and enjoy the kind of life we were made to be. To live. That, that really is the point of verses 5 through 13 that we looked at last week, that Christ alone restores us to glory. But that's not the only point in these verses. That's not the only reason Christ is worthy of your trust. It's enough, but it's not the only one. So let's turn our attention to the second thing, look with me at verse 14, that only the Son of God incarnate can do for us. And I'll summarize it this way. Christ alone destroys the enemy of our soul. Christ alone destroys the enemy of your soul. So look at verse 14. To say that the children share in flesh and blood is to remind all of us of the physicality, the physical nature of our existence as human beings. What what do I mean by that? Well, we're not... We're not just spirits. We're, we're people. We have a soul, but we also have a body. A body of flesh and blood. And because we are flesh and blood, Hebrews says, Jesus chose to partake of the same things. So in other words, what, what you and I always share in, this flesh and blood, we've all got a body. I mean, I'm looking at all of you. It all looks like all of you right now have a body of flesh and blood of some sort. We've always shared in that. The eternal Son of God came to share in that. He didn't always share in that, but he came to share in that the moment he was conceived in Mary's womb, the moment he was clothed in the likeness of men. It wasn't a disguise. It wasn't a front. It wasn't a dual personality. The Son of God incarnate wasn't psycho. It was the one person of the Son of God laying aside the outward manifestation of his divine nature by adding to himself a human nature such that he became fully human while remaining fully divine. You leave out any part of that and the gospel crumbles. That's why I'm so careful with my words in these sermons. To quote the 7th century monk, John of Damascus, the whole Christ assumes the whole me. Think about that. That he might grant salvation to the whole me. For what is unassumable is incurable. Or as the early church often said, you cannot redeem what you do not assume. It's why he had to be God the Son incarnate, clothed in human flesh. Why? Why is that so necessary? It's necessary because salvation requires representation, and representation requires identification. Now now track with me here, okay? I I think most of us would readily accept the fact that you can't represent somebody unless you can identify with them. I, I can't act on your behalf Right? Unless I am intimately acquainted with who you are. So it makes sense that Jesus can't represent us in any way unless he identifies with us. But, but here's the question. Why does he need to represent us? And why does our salvation depend on his ability to represent us? Well, The answer to that is in the middle of verse 14. Look there again. Jesus didn't partake of flesh and blood, the same things, primarily so he could suffer with you, but so he could suffer for you. He he became a man for this reason, so he could die. If he only had a divine nature, he couldn't die. But he took a human nature to himself that he might become a man and that he might die. Why did he have to die? Why did he have to die? It was, it's for this reason. This reason. Our, our greatest problem, your greatest problem in this life, friend, is not the physical challenges you face in this world. It is separation from God on a spiritual level. The greatest problem in your life is not hardship in your physical life, but separation from God in your spiritual life. So please please listen to me very carefully here friends. The most important day in your life, therefore, is not the day you graduate. It's not the day you get out of debt. It's not the day you're married, conceive a child or, or reach the top of the corporate ladder, the most important day in your life is the day you stand before the judgment seat of Almighty God and give an account for your soul. That is the most important day in your life. That's the moment of truth. The decisive day. That's, that's the day that, that all your days on this earth are rushing toward with unstoppable force. That day's not a myth. It's not an idea that the day of your judgment is as certain as the day of your birth. And we all deserve to die on that day, friends. Every one of us. Why? Because not one of us is good as God is good and holy as God is holy. And thus it is unspeakably good news to be told that Jesus didn't just die, but he died for us. He died so that all who who trust in him as their savior, as their representative, wouldn't have to die. But he can't die for you unless he first becomes a man like you. Yet because he did both those things, because he became a man like us so that he could die for us, some amazing things happen as a result of that. Because he became a man like us and died for us, what happens? Look back at verse 14. He, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, became a man like us, that through death, that he might die for us, he might what? Do what? Two things. Two things. First, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He became a man like us, that he might die for us, and through his death for us, two things happen. And the first is this, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's why my first point was simply, Christ alone can destroy the enemy of your soul. You, you know, the Bible, the Bible forces us, whether you like it or not, the Bible forces us to be honest about the reality of Satan and his power. It forces us to do that. We we, we don't sin. We don't break God's law as autonomous, isolated individuals. We have a master. Whenever you sin, whenever you and I break the law of God, we are choosing to follow someone. It may feel to you like you're just going your own way. You know, forget what my parents said. I'm going to do my own thing. It may feel like that. But in reality, whenever we sin, no matter which way that sin takes us, whichever way we turn and follow sin, breaking the law of God, we are following someone. It's not you. It may feel like it. It's Satan himself. Listen to what Jesus said. John chapter 8, verse 44 to those who refuse to obey his word. You are of your father, the devil. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't win popularity (laughs) contests? But it's true. It's true. And your will, those who refuse to obey his word, is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. What does that tell us? What tells us this, that, that Satan hates God. He hates him. Which means he hates all who bear God's image which is all of you. And Satan appeared to accomplish his mission by convincing the first human beings, Adam and Eve, to disobey God's law. Why did he think that would be strategic? Well, because as a result, we all inherit the original guilt, corruption, of our forefather, Adam. And then we all, without exception, add to and pile on that inherited guilt and corruption before a holy God, our own acts of sin, our own disobedience, our own rebellion. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, Satan wins. He wins. Why? Because the righteousness of God compels him To punish our sin and the wages of sin is death. So, by successfully tempting us to sin, Satan wields the power of death over our life. That's his M.O. How am I going to oppose and destroy every image bearer of God? That's how I'm going to do it. So here's the big question. How, how does Jesus destroy the one who is actively seeking to destroy us? How does he do that? How does he do that? He does it this way. Christ destroys the enemy of our soul by shattering or nullifying his power through his death on the cross. That's how it works. I I think the, the New American Standard translation is helpful here when it translates verse 14 like this. Listen, that through death, he might render powerless the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So the destruction in view here is not the end, at least right now, of Satan's existence, but rather the disarming or the destruction of his power. And here's how that happens. Because if you've been in church for some time, you've probably heard plenty of preachers say that Jesus sticks it to Satan so he's done in some way or shape or form. But as I was studying this passage this week, I stepped back and I thought, you know what? How does that actually happen? In a way that I can understand and trust. So think about this. Here's how it happens. Our death is woefully insufficient to atone for the guilt of our sin. It is. Why do I say that? Because the severity of our offense is determined not by our actions relative to other sinners, not how how you stack up in comparison to the world, but rather by the glory of the one against whom we have rebelled. That's what makes our offense severe. Our, our creator king is infinitely glorious and thus the debt of our sin, our in-your-face God, is infinitely great. And That's why our death is woefully insufficient to atone for the guilt of our sin. Your death could not atone for an infinitely great But Christ's death is different. It's different. Where, where our death is of finite worth, the worth of his death is infinite. Why is the, the worth of Christ and therefore the worth of his death infinite? Because he's the eternal son of God. There's no person of greater worth in the universe than God, right? And therefore, there is no sacrifice conceivably possible in the entire universe that would be of greater worth than the Son of God. When God died, Jesus, he paid in full the collective debt that we owed to God. Hebrews 10, verse 12. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I love that. When you you read that picture in your mind, sat down, he's done. Game over. Why? Because his one sacrifice, because of the infinite worth of his person, was fully sufficient to pay the debt of all the sin of the world. That's why he sat down, because no more debt for sin remained. Now, he appeared to die, just like every other man or woman before him died. But unlike every man and woman before him, he didn't remain dead. So, so when the author of Hebrews uses Death, remember this, death is shorthand in Hebrews for Jesus' entire cross work, which culminated in what? The resurrection. The resurrection, And, and that resurrection proved that the merit of his sacrifice exceeded the weight or debt of our sin such that Jesus could no longer remain dead. Does that make sense? Stephen Wellem says it this way, his death paid for sin in full, leaving no cause for death, such that his resurrection necessarily followed. So here's the bottom line. How did Jesus triumph over the devil? How did he, How does he destroy the enemy of our soul? Well Jesus triumphed over the devil, and shattered his power by demonstrating once and for all that the righteousness of God is greater than the sin of man. And therefore, the power of God is greater than the power of Satan. That's how he destroyed the evil one. Acts 2.24. God raised him up, Christ, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why was it not possible for Christ to remain in the grave? Because the worth of his righteousness exceeded far and above and beyond the weight of our sin. I mean, that's the mystery of the gospel, friends. That God himself, the infinite worth of his righteousness, would still be greater than the infinite debt of our sin. If that's not true, you have no hope of salvation. But because it is true, Jesus Christ couldn't stay dead. God had to raise him up. The one thing that Satan hoped would be the demise of man proved incapable of subduing the Son of Man. Colossians 2.15. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So to summarize make no mistake, okay? The power of Satan, the power of death, is real. The wages of sin is still death today, no less than it was before the first Christmas or before the first Easter. But Jesus broke Satan's power as our representative, as our champion. And in so doing, he, he set in motion the final destruction of the enemy of our souls. And his kingdom, Satan's kingdom, will not prevail for this singular reason, friend, on which you can bank your life. Satan's kingdom will not prevail because his power is not supreme. God is. God is. And therefore, it is his kingdom that will prevail. Christ alone, for that reason, destroys the enemy of our soul. Destroys the enemy of our soul. Point number two. Christ alone delivers us from the fear of death. And here's where this gets really personal. Look at verse 15. Here's the second result of Christ's death. That he might what? I said there were two purposes. First, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Second, look at 15, that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you realize, friend, that the devil isn't just a scary enemy who lives in some scary place somewhere. (laughs) If you're not a Christian, he's your master. He's your master. You're enslaved to him, to to advancing his purposes in the world, whether you realize it or not. And things remain that way, absent divine intervention in your life. Why do I say that? Well, because the fear of death keeps us subjected to Satan. And it works like this. It's another one of those things that is so easy just to hear and think, yeah, 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 I got it. But wait a minute, how does the fear of death keep us subject to Satan? Like this, if death is the final word over your life, if death is your guaranteed destiny, so to speak, then why not, why not spend your entire life living for the here and now? I mean, why not? Doing whatever makes you feel good. I mean, if this, if this life is all you've got, why spend it denying yourself the pleasures you crave because some God out there somewhere says, you're breaking my rules. <laughs> maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Who knows? What I do know is that 100% of the time, people die. So if, if that's the case, then I'm just going to live up whatever I've got and let the chips fall where they may. I hear that all the time. I hear that when I talk to my neighbors. Death presses us to live for the here and now. It makes us think that this life is all that there is. And in so doing, it keeps us devoted to the kingdom of this world and keeps us enslaved to the ruler of this world, Satan. Commenting on verse 15, William Lane says, Death, listen to this, is a henchman in the devil's service. And the threat of it is an instrument with which he bludgeons humanity into submission. But if this life, brothers and sisters, is not all there is. If eternal life is actually possible, if, if death need not be the final word, well then suddenly I'm confronted with the possibility that there may be greater gain in denying myself and following Jesus than in denying Jesus and following myself. <laughs> And that invitation, that that promise that death need not be the final word is precisely what Jesus holds out to us through the gospel. John 11, verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What's Jesus saying? You come to me Death, your death, yes, I'm looking at you. Your death is no longer the final word of your life. There is eternal life that I'm eager to give you such that your death is just the beginning. It's just the start. It's just the dot. I'm inviting you to receive unending life. That's what Jesus was saying. How does that happen? Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him, Jesus, a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, when Jesus paid for our sins in full, life didn't just necessarily follow for him. Life necessarily followed for us. That's amazing. That's amazing. By, by dying the death, we deserved to die. And living the life we were supposed to live, Jesus delivers us from the fear of death. He delivers us from slavery to the devil. And in so doing, he sets us free to serve the Lord. And he promised to do that a lot longer, a long time before Jesus ever showed up. Isaiah 49, verse 24. Listen, can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrants be rescued. Who's that tyrant ultimately? Satan. It's the enemy of our soul. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Friend, that privilege, and that is an unspeakable that privilege, deliverance from the fear of death, and slavery to the devil is a privilege reserved exclusively, look at verse 16, Hebrews 2, for the offspring of Abraham. Which is the author of Hebrews' way of reminding us of the absolute necessity of faith. Faith faith. Abraham was a man of faith. In other words, Jesus doesn't just automatically deliver us from the fear of death. You have to trust, you have to believe that Jesus did that for you. Why is faith important? Faith is important because faith unites you with Christ such that he becomes your representative, so that his death becomes the payment for your sins. His life becomes the righteousness you receive, and his resurrection becomes the guarantee of your resurrection. So so if you've spent your entire life fearing death and doing everything possible, countless visits to the gym, countless diets, countless visits to the doctor, countless health articles, whatever I've got to do, I've just got to keep that thing at. I want you to listen to me. You don't have to remain enslaved to that. Jesus is able to set you free from the fear of death. But you have to stop trying to save yourself and start trusting him to save you. So so I exhort you, friend, do that right now. Do that before it's too late. Come to Christ because he offers you the free gift of eternal life. He offers you hope after death. So turn from your sin and follow him. And know that if you're doing that, which is what it means to be a Christian, know that that doesn't mean the battle with Satan or the struggle with the fear of death, is just going to immediately go away. And here's why I want to bring several points of application. We can know in our heads that Christ alone destroys the enemy of our soul. And Christ alone delivers us from the fear of death. But the emotional turmoil in our heart tells an entirely different story. If we're being honest. some of you if you're honest are tempted to live in fear of the devil you feel weak you feel helpless you you wish you were stronger spiritually but but you're not and you know it you feel assaulted on every side by by lies about god lies about yourself Lies about other people. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a besetting sin in your life that nobody else knows about, that you know the evil one is using to to undermine your love for God, or, or maybe there's a persistent anxiety that just keeps getting worse. You're, you're all too aware of his voice, the father of lies, the accuser of the brothers. you you, you wake up in the morning, and all you hear is look at yourself. You're a piece of work. I mean, even even non-Christians have more to show at this stage in life than you do. So quit fooling yourself. God, God doesn't love you. You dropped off his radar a long time ago. I mean, why even keep living? You know what? Why don't you just die and get it over with? We don't Talk about that in church. But we need to. Because that's real. I've sat with people in my office. You're hearing that all over the place. Christian, if that's you, then here's what you have to remember in that moment. When those voices are whispering to you, That's the voice of a defeated enemy. That's the voice of a conquered power. His power is not supreme. His power and his decree is not decisive. Why not? Because that whisperer Has been taken captive and bound and disarmed by the Savior of your soul. So if you're in Christ, Satan is no longer your master. King Jesus is. Satan is no longer in charge of you. King Jesus is. You're a child of the king, not a child of the devil. And it's the king's power and the king's decree and the king's purposes and the king's agenda that will prevail in your life. Jesus didn't just destroy the power of Satan in theory, okay? He destroyed the power of Satan over you, His deliverance, that that deliverance that he promises in verse 15, that's intimately personal. It's not just part of redemptive history, living out there in a book somewhere. A deliverance is part of your history if you're a Christian. King Jesus has personally and decisively broke the power of Satan in your life. And so so that, that voice of the evil one may be loud. But you know what that voice is like? That voice is like a convicted murderer that's hurling insults at the judge and the jury and everyone who will listen as he's being escorted out of the courtroom. Remember that. He's not on the throne. He's been convicted, he's been condemned, and he's being led away, but he won't shut up. I can't wait for the day he's gone. And so you have a battle to fight, Christian. But you know what? As Martin Luther said, His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. His power is not authoritative. His power is not supreme. So don't fear him, brothers and sisters. Fear the Lord. Rest in the victory that Christ has has won for you. Resist the devil's lies with active faith in the word of God. But remember this, it's not your job to defeat Satan. It's not. He's already been defeated. He's already been disarmed. The the battle isn't over, but the outcome of the whole war has already been decided. So remember that and and take heart. Those of you who are tempted to fear the devil, There's another group, and I think our struggle's a little different. We may not be tempted to live in fear of the devil, but you struggle mightily with the fear of death. Only, you don't realize it. say, what? What do you mean? Well, Well, most of the time, when we think of someone who fears death, you think, do I fear death? Do I have a friend who fears death? We think of someone who spends all their time thinking and talking about the end of life. Somebody who lives with this kind of conscious terror that the end will be painful instead of peaceful. That they'll die all alone instead of surrounded by family and friends. I I don't think that that can happen. Those fears are real. I don't think that's where most of us in this room are prone to stumble. To fear that, that death is the end of the story. We know, at least in our heads, that Jesus came to give us eternal life, that that death is a doorway, that that there is real life on the other side of death, and that this life is just the beginning of that. We know that. We trust Jesus on some level. You don't feel afraid of death, but yet you are. Why do I say that? Well, think about it. Think about this very carefully. Fear is is simply an inverted want. What do I mean by that? Fear is just a want, a desire, turned upside down and seen from the other side. So what, so what feels like a desire to avoid something at all costs is simply the negative side of a strong desire to have something at all costs. Does that make sense? That's how fear works. So, a couple examples. A couple examples. To say I'm afraid of what people think of me is to admit that I crave their approval. Make sense? Okay? Or to say that I'm afraid of failure. It's to say what? I crave success. Fear is simply the other side of the coin of a want. So what's the craving? Think about this. What's the felt need on the other side of the fear of death? It's one we don't think about. It's a strong desire to have my best life. My best life now. So happiness, we conclude, is a trouble-free marriage. Happiness is a secure retirement. Happiness is a clean bill of health. Happiness is my own house, two cars, an annual vacation, a little spending money for the weekends, and and all the other comforts and conveniences and securities that we've decided in our mind define success for middle-class America. That's what happiness is. And it's all things in this life. Do you realize even in hearing that, we are way more susceptible to that way of thinking than we would care to admit or I would care to have revealed to all of you in my heart. We say we're not afraid of death. We say that, we sing about it, but then we turn around and assign supreme worth and value to the people and possessions in this life. It's it's the same coin, friends. It's just the other side. You can say you fear death or you can say true joy is found in the stuff of this present world. It's the same issue. Why? What's the issue? It's a conviction that whatever we have in this world is decidedly superior, better, to whatever awaits us in the world to come, and therefore we have to avoid leaving this present world at all cost. Two sides of the same coin. And, and to the degree that's your struggle, to the degree that's my struggle, we need to hear the voice of the Lord to us in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 2. If you're in Christ, your physical death, your, your departure from this present world is not the end of your story. It's not. It's the beginning. It's, it's not the end of your life. It's only getting started. First Peter 1 verse 3. Why? Blessed be the God and Father. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that will perish the moment we die in this life. No, no, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you and not subject to the ravages of the stock market. Praise God for that kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this, you, in the present, rejoice. You rejoice. You decide, Christian. You conclude. You choose to believe because God tells you this is the truth, that what is coming to you in the future is infinitely greater than anything you could cling to in the present. You believe that. You believe God's word. The only alternative is to deny God's word. And you will find joy while you wait. And the reason you'll find joy is that you will know that to be in heaven, to be be in the presence of God himself, to behold his glory and, and see him face to face is all you could ever long for It's so hard to say when your car breaks <laughs> or your tooth needs pulled or you don't have money for that bill The church there is there is nothing better There's no person, there's no pleasure, there's no possession that is more satisfying than Jesus. There's not. Psalm 8410, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere which means the joy you'll experience on that day after you die is immeasurably greater than the greatest joy you will experience today or could experience today. Which is why Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. I mean, was he deluded? Not if you believe the word of God. Not if along with Paul and the entire collective testimony of Scripture and all who have followed Jesus Christ, that there is nothing more satisfying than knowing him and seeing him and serving him and being with him and following him. Because you were made to do that. So I charge you, church, don't value the life that's passing away. Value the life to come. Value the life that's eternal, that's that's truly life. Why? Why? For when you treasure what you cannot lose more than what you will inevitably lose, you won't be worried when things in this life start falling apart. It'll be hard, but you won't freak out. Because you'll know that God has given you something that is infinitely more precious, infinitely more valuable, and cannot be taken away from you even when the doctor says it's cancer. You'll know that. Christ alone delivers us from the fear of death. That's how he does it. But but that's not just a promise for tomorrow. That's a promise for today. I hope you've heard that because that promise, the promise of eternal life with the love of our souls, that frees us from a life of anxious slavery to the stuff of this world and frees us for a life of using whatever God has entrusted to us, people, possessions, relationships, to love him and love people. But because we're not looking to those people, possessions, and relationships to give us our best life now. We don't need them to give us our best life now because we know in Christ our best life is coming. And God's got it. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's so precious, he hasn't entrusted it to you. (laughs) Think about that. He's got it on lockdown. And that is how Christ delivering us from the fear of death plays out in this life. To conclude, and to connect all this to our friend, the Hope Diamond, recognize this. There is a world of difference between knowing who Jesus is and trusting him in light of who he is. Those are not the same thing. I I am aware, I know what the Hope Diamond is. But I don't trust the Hope Diamond to do anything for me in light of what it is. May that not be the case in our attitude toward Christ's church. May may the infinite worth of his person and the sufficiency of his work, may we recognize that that demands our faith and that compels our trust. That's what the Protestant Reformers meant by solus Christus. There's no one else like him. No one else can do for us what he's done. No one else can destroy the enemy of your soul or deliver you from death. So what's the bottom line when it comes to Christ alone? There are plenty of areas in our life in this world where diversification is wise. Guess what? Your faith for salvation is not one of them. It's not. You will be inevitably guaranteed, disappointed, and let down if you trust anyone but Christ to destroy the enemy of your soul and deliver you from the fear of death such that you can live this life knowing the best is yet to come. So I, I urge you, church, I, I admonish you, I exhort you on the authority of the word of God. Go all in with Jesus. Go all in with Jesus, place all your trust, all your confidence, all your hope for salvation in him. Don't diversify your faith. Locate it in Christ because you won't be disappointed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am grateful that you have done so many amazing things for us. You've delivered us from the devil. You've delivered us from the fear of death. And I pray, Father, that as we sing about the hope of the resurrection and the life that we have in you, that this doctrine, this truth of Christ alone would take on new significance. And that you would help those of us who maybe came in today thinking, I'm not afraid of death, I know the gospel. But whom your spirit is convicted, even in the last hour, of putting all our eggs in the basket of this earth and clinging to the things of this world for dear life. I pray that on the heels of that conviction, you would open our eyes to see that you are merciful to convict us. And that this truth of Christ alone isn't just something that we keep in our pocket for the day of judgment, the final day but it makes a demand on the way we live today and tomorrow and every day till you take us home. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that trust you alone. and As a result of that, you would deliver us from fear of the evil one, fear of his whispers, and from the fear of death, that we wouldn't live for what we can see, we would live for you the lover of our soul I thank you that that is not just possible but that is good news because you rose from the grave Amen